If you would open up the Bible that you brought with you, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Bible that's there in the pew. And if you don't have a Bible at all, meaning you didn't forget to bring one, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you always to take with you for yourself. Or if you have someone you want to put a Bible in their hands, please take that this Sunday. And I want you to open up to John's first letter, 1 John chapter 3. It's page 856 in that pew Bible, if that's what you're using. We've been in the first letter of John for a couple of weeks now. We've got two more to go. They're a little bit shorter, as you'll find out. But even just midway through, more than midway through John's first letter, there's a lot that uh, John has been saying to us. And based upon the conversation in the community, it's been challenging. And it's, it's, it's caused us to ask some questions, both as a community, but also as individual pilgrims on the way. Truth be told, uh, I didn't intend to only preach on this short passage. I actually was going to start to dip into chapter 4, which if you look ahead, the subtitle tells you it's about the Antichrist. And I had the best sermon title ready for you, An Antichrist Only a Mother Could Love. And it was going to be a great <laughs> sermon for Mother's Day. But, and John was ready. He was excited to see what was going to happen. Um, but, you know, in going through John, I actually pulled back because the last couple of weeks, what John has been sharing with us has for me, and I know for many of you, has challenged. Like I said, it's, it's, it's asked us to ask some deeper questions about our practices and, and to look at inconsistencies and, and how we look at believing and following Jesus, that those two things John continues to hold up should go together, and yet for many of us, they don't. And so I thought it would be important to step back a little bit. And, and in reading the rest of chapter 3 here in John's first letter, I noticed that John actually repeats some things, sort of bringing some things together from another perspective, things he's already said. But he also gives us a word of encouragement. And I thought it would be appropriate. I think we're in need of that. We're in need of a little bit of a confidence booster, a word of encouragement in the midst of perhaps a lot that we feel like we're, we're being told that we should be and yet we're not. And it's not that John hasn't been encouraging to this point, but perhaps we might have missed it in the midst of his passion and the other things that he said. But in this particular passage, I think you're going to find a little bit of a confidence booster. John doesn't want to lose us. John doesn't want us to get overwhelmed, and so he offers us a word of encouragement that I hope you'll hear in just these few verses in chapter 3. So if those Bibles are open, let's read together the word of the Lord. Verse 19, John writes, This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God com God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So verse 19, right where John starts, this is how we know, some translations, by this we know indicating that our starting point this morning is, again, looking back to the fullness of what John has written, but even sp more specifically to what we looked at last week in chapter 3. So by way of review, if you weren't with us, or if you were, to refresh your memory, what is John building on as he begins to speak here? John said the following, and he, said this, he has said this repeatedly, in fact, throughout this letter. We are to love one another as God loves us. 
We are to love others like Jesus, who died for us in order that we might live. Our love for each other, therefore, in other words, should reflect, it should represent the reality of God's love for all through Jesus Christ. And therefore, the caliber of our love, the love that we express to each other, ought to be nothing less than the willingness to lay down our lives for others. And as John has explicitly stated at the end of where we ended last week, this kind of love, loving like Jesus, involves more than words. It requires the truth of our actions, the truth of Christ, Christ's love revealed through our actions. So looking at this, I think it's helpful just for a second to look at how what John is saying helps us maybe to understand and is in compl- complements what all of Scripture says. You remember in the Gospels, and this is some, something at times we get stuck on, that Jesus himself, when he called his disciples, calls us to follow him, goes out of his way to say that we have to die to ourselves. He says we have to take up our cross and follow him. And I think in light of what John has said, and he's not alone in saying it in Scripture, one way we can understand those very provocative statements by Jesus, to die to ourselves and to carry our cross, is that the cross of Christ, the cross we carry and bear together, is God's love for the world. That's what John is trying to get us to understand. The cross that we carry, the cross of Christ that we bear together, is God's love for the world. And when Jesus tells us to die to ourselves, a way to, a way to think of that if, that, if that's difficult for us to get our hands around, John has teased out for us that to die to ourselves and to live for God means laying down our lives for each other. To die to ourselves is to lay down our lives for the other person, for each other. Now again, I've encapsulated what John has said, and I've looked at, uh, helped it, has used it to help us see how other scriptures are saying the same thing, and we can condense it, clarify it, and kind of put it in front of us so it's, we can understand it. But as Pastor John shared, I just really appreciated it so honestly last week when he instituted communion. It's hard. We can put it out there, we can get it, but it's hard. It's hard Even though we're not on our own, even though that's what John tells us and all of Scripture tells us, it's hard to love like that. Even though this is something we're not called to do in our own strength, it's hard. Even though we have the empowerment and direction of the Holy Spirit, it's hard to love like Jesus. Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? It's hard because... It's hard to let go of past hurts, isn't it? It's hard to let go of old wounds. It's hard to let go of unresolved wrongs. It's hard to let go of deeply held, and from our perspective, well-founded biases. It's hard to remain focused in a world filled with distractions, isn't it? With pretty shiny things with nonstop conversation and busyness. It's hard because we get so easily lost or distracted by our own agendas, our own priorities. It's hard. It's hard to always remember to love like Jesus because we're creatures of habit. And what we practice and what we're better versed in is a different kind of love. A different kind of love than John is inviting us into, than John is talking about. A more superficial, a more transactional love. A love with a lot of emotion in the moment, but not much commitment in the long term. We throw around the word love a lot. 
We exchange the sentiment, I love you, quite a bit. But when John speaks, is it with the depth? Is, is it with the conviction? Is it with the, the fullness? Does it point to Christ? It's hard. It's hard because we're works in progress, right? We're works in progress. We're growing. We're maturing into this faith. And John knows it's hard. John, in this brief passage, this part of his letter, addresses, I think, the challenge, the hardness. He addresses the temptation that can come before us. And before I get to his word of encouragement and confidence, let's talk about that temptation in the midst of how hard it can be, the challenge. Before the call to love one another like Jesus and the challenge, the challenge that it's slow going for us, that we're incrementally growing. We're on the way, but we aren't there yet. In the call to one and love one another like Jesus, in answering that call, it's so easy for two temptations to lay hold of us. One, we can be tempted to give up. What's the use? I'll never get there. Or we can be tempted secondarily to give in. Why bother? It's just easier to hate. And I, and I hinted at this last week when I said that we give, in, we give in when we love to hate rather than release the hate in order to love like Christ. John recognizes we experience both of these temptations most acutely through our hearts he talks in the language of our hearts, but we might label what he calls our hearts as our conscience. And you all know our conscience, what our conscience is. Whenever I hear the word conscience, and I hope I don't date myself with this, I always think about Jiminy Cricket. Am I alone in this? <laughs> our conscience, that voice inside our head is Jiminy Cricket. Our conscience is that useful, helpful regulator and, ga and ga gauge in our, inside of us to help us know what's right and wrong. But what John is teasing out, what John is pointing to, is that apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit, our conscience, despite the presentation of Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, apart from God, from the Holy Spirit, our conscience is flawed just like the rest of ourself. Our conscience needs redemption and salvation too. Because the thing is, the reality of our failings and shortcomings in expressing love, particularly Christ-like love, it can weigh upon our conscience, right? And it can weigh so heavily upon our conscience sometimes that we just give in, like I said earlier. We just give in, you know, and turn our consciences off. You ever turned your conscience off? You turn your conscience off when we begin to rationalize, when we begin to compartmentalize what we're doing or not doing. The burden of our conscience can lead us to give in and just turn it off. Or we can allow our conscience to turn on us. And as I said before, we can just give up. It's like a broken record. Have you had this experience? It's like a broken record. Our hearts, our consciences can replay in our heads our worst moments, our biggest screw-ups, our losing battles again and again, over and over, until we are worn down. We're worn down and we find ourselves mired in guilt wallowing in shame and indicted in self-condemnation. And, and the emphasis there is that idea of we get stuck. It's not necessarily that guilt and shame aren't a part of our, relate, our process of coming to faith, of confession and repentance. It's the idea of getting stuck, mired, wallowing, indicted, where we get trapped. Because the thing is, that, that experience of mired, wallowed, tra wallowing, trapped, stuck, in guilt and shame and self-condemnation, that's not God's desire. That's not God's will for us. 
In fact, the enemy attacks this area of vulnerability repeatedly. The enemy entices us to turn off our conscience. The enemy entices us to remain imprisoned by our conscience. But John's answer, his word of encouragement, his boost for us to lift us up, his word is not for us to turn off our conscience, not to just shrug off the promptings uh, that we get and to deny the growth and maturity that's still before us. John's word is not for us to, to turn off our conscience, but his word is also not for us to give up to remain imprisoned by the court of our conscience, where we're just motivated and frustrated and ultimately condemned. You know what that's like, right? How many of us are motivated by guilt and shame? It's not a good motivation. Motivation by guilt and shame, we we seek to do, but we get frustrated. And we fall back until this, this vicious cycle just wears us down and we just give up. But John's encouragement is not for us to turn off our conscience or to give up. John's encouragement Did you catch it? Is when he says, God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our conscience. He knows everything. John says, God knows everything. Now, intellectually or in the moment, you might go, well, that makes sense, but have you ever really let that thought penetrate you? God knows everything about us, He knows more about you than you know about yourself. Think about that. When we're unsure about our motives, what drives us? Do you ever, ever question that? What, what is motivating me? What's driving me? When we're unsure, God knows. When we try to hide or deny our weaknesses, we all have them, right? But we work really, really hard to mitigate them, to deny them or hide them. When we try to deny or hide our weaknesses, God knows them. All the mistakes, all the failures, all the rejections, all the disappointments, all the demons we wrestle with, all the secrets we never tell anyone, we hope no one ever finds out about, that tempt us to believe we can never change, that tempt us to believe we can never be healed fully, that we can never ultimately truly be pardoned, God knows. God knows everything, John writes. And God is greater than our hearts. God knows everything and God is greater than our hearts because our Father loves us in spite of it all. God knows everything and God is greater than our hearts because our Father forgives us to free us from condemnation. Beloved, God is greater than your conscience. Our conscience, our heart by itself, on its own, it cannot generate the confidence we need John is connecting some things here. He talks about confidence, but that confidence cannot come from within. On our own, our conscience and our heart cannot generate the confidence we need. Being motivated by guilt and shame will not give you confidence. Turning off your conscience will not motivate confidence. By our conscience alone, when we take things too lightly, we deceive ourselves and fill ourselves with false self-confidence. By our conscience alone, we can judge ourselves too harshly, being harder on ourselves than God. And I want to give a pastoral word to you. I have encountered more than, more than my share, and it's shocking, of how many people who are believers and followers of Christ are harder on themselves than God. And when we judge ourselves too harshly, when we let our consciences condemn us past the point of God's reaching, Hard being harder on ourselves than God, we leave ourselves not with a sense of false self-confidence, but with no confidence whatsoever. And John declares here that the antidote for insecurity and self-incrimination is looking to our relationship with God. Not looking within, but looking up. 
and bringing back around things that he said before. In other words, John is talking again about us existing out of our identity as a child of God. God is greater than our conscience because God's forgiveness is greater than our self-condemnation. God is greater than our hearts because God's love is greater than our fickle, conditional self-love. But we can't understand that. We can't immerse ourselves in it. We can't tap into that unless we come back to our identity. We exist out of our identity as children of God. John, in that first sentence of encouragement, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than us, and he knows everything, then has that second sentence, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And it's very easy to read that second sentence as somehow being conditional, meaning that, okay, once we get it all together, then we can have confidence before God when our hearts don't condemn us. But this is not a conditional statement. John doesn't go from giving us encouragement to then saying, when you get to that point where you never fail or fall short, No, what John is saying with that second sentence is when we get to that place where we yield our hearts before the greater heart of God, when we get to that place where we we follow our conscience only as far as it leads us to the greater spirit of God, we receive and experience the confidence of our Father in us. We receive his confidence in us. The conviction, the courage before the temptation to just turn off the encouragement and the assurance before the temptation to just turn on ourselves. And John says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And this is a great passing of the baton to what we celebrate next week, which is Pentecost. God abides in us via the Holy Spirit. For me, the way to understand what John is saying, the way to maybe enter into it, is to to tap into a picture, a memory, that I hope we all have. Today's Mother's Day, as we've talked about, and it's a day where we rightly should celebrate, honor, and recognize our moms in whatever form they might come, biological, adoptive, spiritual. But Mother's Day, like Father's Day, which we'll celebrate in another month, isn't just for moms. It's a time for all of us. On Mother's Day, we have this experience where it takes us back to reflecting on our childhood. I forgot my belt, right? And I went back to my childhood, right? Today's the day when we reflect on our childhood. We go back to a simpler time in life when all our needs were met by someone else. Do you remember that? When all our needs were met by someone else and hopefully unconditionally. You see, I want to tap into that picture. I want to look at it because I think that's what John is invoking here. He's invoking and bringing some things together that it's this childlike confidence that he seeks to invoke in us. This childlike confidence coming out of our identity as children of God. So to get there, I want you to think, and you may have to go back a bit, to the initial relationship you had. You won't remember this, but maybe by observation with someone else. Think about the initial relationship of a child to their parents. I'm talking about the first couple of years, okay? Infancy, toddler. In in those first couple of years, that relationship of the child to their parents is one of implicit trust and unabashed confidence, in most cases. Implicit trust and unabashed confidence. You you think about it, think about an infant or a toddler. Failure and imperfection do not deter infants and toddlers. Right? One of the first two things they're learning how to do, they're learning how to walk and how to talk. And it doesn't phase them a bit. They get up, they fall, they get up, they just keep at it until they walk. 
talking, they just keep going until they are able to be understood. There's no uh, sense of, oh, I'll never do this. I'm never gonna get this. There's no sense of, oh, I am so flawed. They just go on, they press on. And, and I think part of that, the reason for that is, again, in most cases, what they are surrounded by with their parents in those first couple of years is just nothing less than encouragement, absolute encouragement and love, right? I mean, they're, they're just, we just blanket them in this encouragement and love. Anything they do, anything, we celebrate, right? Da, 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 oh my gosh, that's great, yeah, keep it going, that's fantastic. Oh, you'll get it? I mean, we get excited over dirty diapers for the first couple of days, right? First couple of days, first couple of days. I didn't say the long haul. <laughs> we give them this absolute, unconditional love. There's, and again, it's not, it has, I mean, I don't want any show of hands, but did anyone when your children were learning to walk or learning to talk go, come on! Come on! Pick yourself up, get it going! I don't want to hear da-da, give me daddy! Come on! No! We, they don't have to earn it. There's not, and by the way, there's nothing they have to offer, but we just blanket them with this encouragement and this love, and I think out of that, there is no fear. There's no fear of failure or imperfection. It doesn't even occur. And before I build on this, I have to, to, to talk about the fact that it doesn't stay there. That's why I, I want to tap into those first couple of years. Somewhere along the way, and it's different for all of us, somewhere along the way, our parental motivation changes from being just enraptured by anything they do, blanketing them in love and encouragement, that's it, nothing else, to all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, our parental motivation becomes like that of a drill sergeant. <laughs> where we motivate by beating up the conscience of our children. Where the things that we would never say when they were learning to walk and talk suddenly are not a problem. You should have known better. Can't you do any better than that? Is that the best you can do? I expected more from you. Somewhere along the way, our parental motivation moves from just absolute love and encouragement to leaning more on the side, if not all the way there, to beating up the conscience. But what John wants us to understand, and that's part of why we carry that, John wants us to understand our Father motivates through love and forgiveness. He doesn't beat up our conscience, he frees it. Be at ease, John is saying here. God says, do not fear. How many times in Scripture does God say, do not fear? John puts it this way. You can set your heart at rest in the presence of God. Our Father says to us as his children again and again, I've got you, so you've got this. Follow my lead. God is not described in the scriptures like a drill sergeant. There are many ways that God's described, and one that stands out to me is he's described and likened to a shepherd. When our hearts condemn us before our mistakes, failures, and shortcomings overwhelm us to the point of just giving in or giving up, John is telling us to look at our good shepherd, to look to our good father, to trust in his direction, his care, to rest in his strength, and to just keep walking and talking the language of faith, hope, and love. 
Beloved, we don't come to God as strangers. We come as his children. And it's not just John who teases this out. This is throughout the scriptures. One beautiful place it it occurs elsewhere is Paul. Paul, in his letter to the Romans chapter 8, puts it this way. Same understanding, same idea as John. Paul writes, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, our heart, our conscience, that we are God's children. My friends, if you're here today and if you perceive you are a stranger to God, or God is a stranger to you, then you need to go back to your identity as a child of God. You need to realize and rediscover and know through Christ, through the Spirit, according to the Word of God, that you are a part of the family. You are a part of the family. It's it's out of our confidence as children of God abiding in that relationship that we can, as John goes on to write, keep his commands and love one another as he commanded us. To, to again, tap into this family image, it's this idea of living at home. Don't you find this interesting? Don't you find it interesting that for us as human beings, at least Westerners, that the trajectory of, of childhood is to get out, Right? The trajectory of childhood, either whether it's us as the child, we want to get out of the house, away, you know, out of under the roof of our family. And then for, our, for you, us as parents, we're also like, yeah, we want you to get out. <laughs> I mean, don't you find it interesting that our whole trajectory is about getting out, and yet the gospel, the scriptures proclaim that God as our father, his whole trajectory is about bringing us home, living at home that God never wanted us to get out in the first place. God wanted us to stay. We abide in that relationship, and that's how we gain our confidence. We reflect confidence. We gain confidence as we love others like Jesus, John is telling us. And loving like Jesus, as John has told us, is a matter of practicing such love. In other words, our confidence in this relationship we have with our Father builds by exercising the love we have been given. Many of us, we, we get stuck in loving like Jesus because we, don't, we are waiting to feel the love from others. But instead of waiting to feel the love from others, John is saying we are to rely on the love God has for us. That means we engage Others with love, love like Christ, by reflecting, fixating, being driven by God's love for us. And the interesting thing is, it's oftentimes through the practice of serving others, laying down our lives, that we better understand and feel the love God has for us. We better understand how we are a part of the family, and ironically, not surprisingly, how they are too. John goes on here to write that this childlike confidence before God is experienced and nurtured through prayer. He says, with this confidence, we can receive from him anything we ask. 
John is pointing to a logical, a logical result. A relationship involves engagement, conversation, talking. John is saying we can, we ought to engage, converse, and talk to our Father. We can and should seek help, seek direction. We can learn from our Father just by dwelling in his presence. How many of you have vivid memories of learning things from your parents just by watching them? Just from hanging out with them? Back to that, again, first couple of years with kids, <laughs> infants and toddlers. <laughs> if I got a reaction on the diapers, I'm going to get a reaction on this one. You ever notice in those first couple of years that young children ask a lot of questions <laughs> without any filter whatsoever? They don't hesitate, man. The questions just keep coming. They're not afraid of no or deterred by not yet. They'll just keep asking. They'll change it up. One of the, like, the arts of parenting, art of parenting is in that stage of figuring out how to shut them down because they're just going to keep asking. And, and what drives that for children at that young age is from where, from where they are, no request is too big. Nothing is impossible for mom or dad. Nothing is off the table. So they ask and they ask. No, not you. Well, what about this? What about that? And no request is too small. If it matters to them, they just instinctively believe it must matter to mom and dad. And how often have our children in the midst of their questions, if we allow it, when we get past the point of initial frustration or annoyance, we suddenly allow the questions that our children ask that seem small and insignificant to us to actually make us realize what we're missing. For John, our prayer life, our relationship, our conversational relationship with God, our Father ought to be like that. It ought to exude such confidence and persistence John isn't saying, and we're going to clarify this some more, that God becomes our genie in a bottle and just gives us all our wishes, whatever we want. No, John is saying our confidence is rooted in a God who always gives us what we need. We approach a Father who knows everything. A Father who knows everything, which means that God hears everything. Anything we say, all that we ask, God hears it. And we appeal to a generous and giving Father. Nothing is too big for our God. Nothing is too big for our God. God is capable of doing more than we could imagine or hope for. And nothing is too small to occupy our Father's attention. Perhaps nothing brings this out than the Psalms, the, the beauty of the Psalms at times, the eloquence of the Psalms, that if it matters to us as children, then it matters to our Father. Our confidence in prayer, however, is not based upon our works, that somehow we earn it. And we need to be careful because there's a, there's a line here in this brief passage and there's other scriptures like it which we can misread. You know, there's these passages that talk about asking in Jesus' name, if we ask according to God's will, if we abide in Jesus, or as John writes it here, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And it's so easy to step back and go, oh, so those are the conditions to get our prayers heard and answered. But in those other scriptural passages in here, John is not laying out conditions that we strive for in order to hope for getting an audience with God first and then getting hopefully a positive response. Ours is not a name-dropping faith or some magical charm faith where if you drop the name Jesus, all of a sudden you're in. Where if you all of a sudden say it the right way, behave the right way, you're in. We do not have a God who is transactional in that way. We do not have a God, again, who's a genie. What John is getting at here, and it's a much deeper and more profound and encouraging thought, 
and other scripture writers is this isn't, these are not conditions to strive for in hope of getting an audience with God and, and then a positive response. These are all expressions of an existing ongoing relationship with God. Meaning, when you're in relationship with God, you keep his commands, you, you're in stride with him and you do what pleases him and therefore you're in sync with this God. In other words, if you know who you are, if you know where you stand with God our Father, if you're immersed in learning and growing from the character of Christ, if you rely on and listen to the Holy Spirit, not as a condition, not in, in, as, a, as an if-then, but if, you're, if that's your reality, then your confidence in prayer will come not from your works or wants. Your confidence in prayer will come from an increasing knowledge and awareness of what God desires. Someone once put it this way, succinctly, and I love it. The more we delight in the love of God, the more our desires become reflections of God's will. The more we delight in the love of God, live out of that love, the more our desires, our prayers, become reflections of God's will. Our confidence in prayer is not based upon our works, and our confidence in prayer is also not based on God's work as we perceive it. It's not based on God's work as we perceive it. What I mean is, every word spoken, every request made is answered by our Father. It's just not answered necessarily the way we asked for it or in a way we understand. Think again back to that, those first couple of years. Those first couple of years, young children trust their parents. They trust their parents even when they disagree with them. Even when a child at those first couple of ages hearing no or not yet, the child still believes mom can handle this. Mom can come up with an answer. Mom can fix this. And a child looks and learns from the parent's response, not necessarily the result per se. They watch and learn from the response. My friends, our father is never aloof or eternally silent. He answers our prayers but we have to believe and trust as children that God our Father often answers us with this is too much for you. You're not ready for this. There's more going on here than you realize. And in the midst of hearing that, still trusting that God can handle it, that God can come up with an answer, that God can fix this. And in the midst of that trust, we need to look and learn from our Father's response rather than focus on the result. And ask yourself, and this is a, a great reflective question, in your relationship with our Father, are you learning from your Father's response or are you so focused on the result, getting what you want through your prayers? Our confidence is not based on the results. That's not John's point. Our confidence is based on the relationship. And our confidence is not based on a relationship with other people, their consistency, or their greatness, or lack thereof. John is saying our confidence is based upon the greatness of our God. You know what strikes me today is John's word in this brief little section of his letter is a message that is the exact opposite of what the world around us tells us every day. The wisdom of this age, the underlying theme of nearly every story conveyed through word, music, or pictures is follow your heart. Listen to your heart and do what it says. If it feels right, then do it no matter what. 
This is terrible advice. Terrible advice that always leads us back to the same place. Whenever we follow the desire of our hearts, we will never, we are never satisfied. We always end up eventually somewhere down the line. It may take a while, but we always end up eventually getting bored and ultimately wanting more. Just following the desire of our hearts results in us using the love of others and taking that love for granted while we make promises of our love but never completely follow through on it. In other words, just following our hearts causes us to break a lot of other hearts along the way. And where does that leave us in the end? Even though it's not all about me, where does that leave me in the end? Still searching, trying to fill that empty void in my heart even as my conscience condemns me for all of my failures without relief and starts to convince me slowly, oh so slowly, I'll never experience, I could never deserve, I will never find what I am looking for. Beloved, that hole in our hearts can only be filled by our creator, by the God who made us in his image, who saved us through his son, and who abides within us by his Holy Spirit. The conviction of our conscience can only take us so far. It can bring us to our knees, but it cannot lift us into heaven. So this morning, I ask you, who are you going to believe? Are you gonna believe the desires of your heart? Your conscience that rises up to condemn you? Or the God come down? The Lord who rises up from sin and death to assure us he is our Father. We are all his children and he has come to bring us home together. Beloved, John speaks a better word today a word of mercy, a word of grace, a word of truth, a word of confidence. God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Our Father knows we don't measure up. Our Father knows our love is partial and immature. Our Father knows we are works in progress, but works in progress in his hands. And through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, our Father is growing and maturing us in this love we have been given. Therefore, let us listen to God through his word and his spirit. For the word of God is greater than our hearts. The Holy Spirit is greater than our conscience. Jesus did not come to leave us condemned, dead, and buried in our sins. Don't remain trapped by your conscience. Don't turn it off. Let your conscience be made clear. Submit your conscience to the leading, the direction of the Holy Spirit, and then hear God our Father through both word and spirit whisper to you something that is much more true, something that will satisfy, that will fill that hole more than all the other voices. You are my beloved child through faith in Jesus Christ. My love for you is real. The love I seek to impart through you to others, to your brothers and sisters, is real. No matter how it feels, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how you feel about anyone else, my love is real. My love saves you. My love will change you. My love can overcome the world. Beloved, don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Follow God in Christ because God in Christ is greater than our hearts. Let us listen 
Let us believe and let us follow. Amen.